Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 132, A Conversation with Anna Coleman. I am really excited to bring you this conversation. Anna and I connected on social media several years ago, and I've been wanting to have her on as a podcast guest ever since. Anna is a eight-year triple positive breast cancer thriver. She is passionate about helping women own their unique stories, step into their authentic selves, and thrive through trauma with self-love, wellness, and style. She is a women's health advocate, a mama to a three-year-old, and a baby on the way. And she uses her own story of trauma and resilience facing cancer in her 20s and navigating a fertility journey to inspire others to maintain hope. On today's episode, we talk about all of that and we really do a deep dive into her fertility journey, her decisions to take a break from endocrine therapy, to attempt pregnancy, the hurdles that she's had along the way and where she is now. While we often talk about fertility after cancer, we don't always talk about the challenges of it, both in an emotional and physical way. And I know this episode will be helpful for so many. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Anna Coleman to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Yay, I'm so excited. I know we've like connected online so long ago. And so this feels like it's been a long time coming. Exactly. And you know, I follow you and watch all your, we were talking, watch all your videos. You feel like you know somebody without actually ever like connecting with them. Um, but I'm glad we're, we have this time to talk. So let's kind of get right into it. And, and why I know a lot of people who know your story, but for those who don't, can you share a little bit kind of going back a few years and your original diagnosis and all of that? Absolutely. So I um, was 27 newlywed. My husband and I had been married for about a year and we'd been together many years prior. So we already knew like kind of here's our family planning goals and what we want to do. And so I went off birth control for the first time in probably, um, you know, 10, 15 years. I'd been on it since I was a teenager. And we were kind of in that period of trying to start a family. And it was around that time that I found a lump on my breast in the shower and having had a friend recently that had gone through kind of a fibroadenoma scare, I immediately was texting her like, what should I be looking for? What will it feel like? And was very panicked. And since I was so young, I felt very lucky that I had an OB that just was very supportive and understanding and kind of comforting and said, it's probably nothing. It's probably a fibroadenoma. It's probably a cyst, but let's just get it checked out. Um, and then I'm sure like many of your patients and listeners, within a couple of weeks, it was not a fibroadenoma, it was not a cyst, it was um, stage 2B triple positive breast cancer. And coming from someone who 
at the time, I felt I was in the best shape of my life. I was doing all of the wellness things. I was eating vegan. I was limiting my processed foods. I was exercising every day. Um, the one thing I was not doing, looking back now, is managing my stress very well. Um, and so, of course, then dealing with a cancer diagnosis on top of planning to have started a family that year and really being on that track cancer really caught me by surprise. And so again, I was lucky to have a care team that allowed me to prioritize fertility preservation and go through a cycle of IVF, freeze embryos. Um, I had a single mastectomy uh, actually before my fertility preservation to gain us a little bit of time. Um, they were just worried because my cancer was so aggressive. They wanted to get it out immediately and then said, then we'll have time for the fertility preservation and you can start chemo. And then if you want to do a prophylactic mastectomy, we'll do it afterwards. Um, and so kind of then went into just survival mode of, okay, I just got this diagnosis three weeks after I thought it was nothing. And now I'm suddenly planning for chemo and having discussions with my new husband about, you know, do we want to freeze embryos and what does that look like and the timelines and talking about what does medical menopause mean and so many of those factors um, and then going into chemo and then years of hormone blocking therapy and surgeries and reconstruction so I'm sure we'll get into all of it but that's kind of my, that's <laughs> my big, high that's level big picture so one of the things <laughs> yeah. that before we kind of get into it you know listening, you kind of saying your doctor was reassuring you it's probably a fibroadenoma, it's probably a cyst. You know, we do that all the time because we, you know, we, we want to be positive and we want to reassure people. And a lot of times we're trying to reassure ourselves too, like, no, like, you know, this can't be anything, but looking back at it, was it helpful to hear it that way? Or would you have preferred for someone to say, you know, this could be something? You know, I think, in my head, this is interesting because people at the time asked me, they were like, how are you feeling about this? You know, stay positive. And in my head I already knew it was cancer. I don't know if it was just something about being in tune with my body and feeling like something was off, but I already kind of had this feeling that it was cancerous. And so to me, it was comforting for her to kind of say, it's probably not, but let's be cautious. And I think hearing so many stories of young women my age that have been dismissed or have been told it's nothing. I think for me, it was helpful to have that balance of hopefully it's not, hopefully it's this, but here's what it could be. And so while we didn't get into the nitty gritty of, you know, cancer and talking through what that would look like, I did feel very supported in the sense that she was like, we're going to get an ultrasound. We're going to get a mammogram. We're going to go do these screenings. And I think in my head, just based on where I was at mentally, I already jumped to it's probably cancer and started preparing for that. Um, but I can see how for some people, they may want like that more stark kind of, this is what it could be and let me help you prepare. But for me, it was the best thing mentally at the time. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes we'll ask you know, I always ask patients, like, how do you want to get the scan results? Or how do you want, you know, do you want me to call you? Do you want to the portal? But I think it's tricky when you're seeing someone for something, new, right? And you're trying to strike that balance of like, 
I want to be positive, but I also don't want to dismiss the symptoms, right? And you don't, you also don't want to create panic, even though probably there's panic already brewing. Underneath. Well, and I love that you kind of bring up like, how do you want to get your results? Because I had a great first impression with this OB that then referred me for the scans. But from that point on, it was not a great experience because I actually had to really, really fight to get um, my scans in a timely manner. I mean, they wanted to schedule me three, four weeks out. And luckily I worked at a medical facility across from the hospital at the time. And I literally just showed up in the office and like waited for the radiologist to walk out, you know, and, and bombarded my way. And I was like, look, I'm 27. Like I'm going out of town for a vacation on Friday. Like I need to get this done. Um, And so it was very difficult. And then I actually was in Mexico at the time waiting for the scan results. And they had, you know, the hospital had promised, like, we're going to call you before 4th of July. We're going to let you know, like, we're, you're, someone's going to contact you. And then nobody called. Yeah. And so I'm calling like every day, like, do you have my results? Do you have my results? Leaving messages. And so I love that you're a little bit more proactive. It sounds like in terms of yeah. how can I contact you? <laughs> well, because I think also too, right? Like the last thing you want to do, I mean, now people find out on the portal and that's a whole other thing, but like the last thing you want to do is someone is driving in the highway and you call them, you know? And so I know sometimes like we, tr- we try to say like, okay, you know, we'll call you or you're going to come in for your, you know, whatever it is. So kind of jumping forward. So you go through all the, you know, the, the treatment, and you have you did the fertility preservation so what was the decision you have a child and so what was that those conversations like you know when did you decide okay we're going to try to conceive yeah i mean it was such a hard process i think mentally in terms of coming to terms with a new timeline and i hear that from so many other women too especially if you are either in the process of family planning or going through that when you're diagnosed. And for me, in my very first appointment, the oncologist I met with was like, you can't have kids for five years and maybe never. And that was like red flag for me. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, you're not the right oncologist for me. Um, And so we never saw him again. And I (laughs) saw out another doctor, but even with the new doctor, you know, at the time, because this was 2015, the positive study was underway, but there still really wasn't any um, formal guidelines in terms of what was appropriate. And so my oncologist at the time was like, look, I'd really like you to give me three years on your hormone blocking medication. Um, And so she was a lot more, I won't say harsh, she was a lot more firm in her three years at the beginning, versus for me at that time, I really wanted to be like, what is this deadline I need to know so I can count down. And so being so young and three years feels like a really, really long time. And so me and my husband's approach was very much like, we're just going to put this whole family planning thing on hold and really like not even talk about it or acknowledge it. And that was really just a coping mechanism, I think, for us, because thinking about it in a three year countdown was just too obstructive to our lives. And so I had to be like, okay, figure myself out. Like, who am I beyond this wanting to be a mother right now? Um, And so we kind of had that three-year time frame in our head. And then about, so I had started Lupron um, 
during chemo. So I technically had been on Lupron three years, but only on my aromatase inhibitors and letrozole for 2.5. And we kind of got to the point that summer before that we hit that time frame where the thoughts just started coming back to us. We were getting to a different point in our lives and like our marriage and just feeling like we really wanted a child. And it wasn't that it had ever stopped. It was just that we kind of put the focus in other areas. I really started blogging and sharing online and I changed careers. And so there were other things to focus on. Um, And so then when that time came and we both like had that really difficult conversation, I remember we, um, we actually like had this I mean, it was kind of a traumatic conversation of like sitting down and talking about the fear and me saying like, Hey, I really want to do this, but I'm also like terrified of what could happen to me, you know? And I'm terrified of like, what could happen to you if you're like left with this baby? Like, is this something that you're okay with? You know, we had these really, really open, like, we just need to talk about the fears and be really scary and go dark. Um, and make sure we're on the same page. And there was a lot of tears. And then we were like, okay, at the next oncology appointment, like we're going to bring this up and not sure how she's going to react. And before we even brought it up, I was like, so I want to talk to you about something. And she was like, you want to have a baby, right? And we were like, yeah, (laughs) she's like, great, let's do it. And so while we were kind of in that 2.5 to three year range at the time, she again, was very open and supportive of just saying, you know, there's not a lot of data out there for your age group, for your story, for your experience, but I think this sounds good. And so that was kind of how we ended up in that time frame per se. And, you know, I think what you said about having those difficult conversations is so important and it's hard. And no matter how close you are to someone, right, putting those things out of you and and sharing them with another person, but it's really important. And I hope people listening kind of think about that and think about doing that, right? Because I think you need to get those things out there, whether or not you're trying to conceive or not. I think just in general, those hard conversations is so important. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's something to the power of our thoughts when we don't verbalize them and like how much more control they seem to have over us until we speak them. And so, like you said, it's so terrifying to say those things yeah. out loud, but then to have verbalized it, it's almost freeing because it's like, okay, yeah, that fear's there. It's not going to go away, but it's like, Hey, maybe it doesn't have as much control over me as I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I really like that perspective. So you you see that you see the oncologist, you're, you know, green light and like, Obviously, it's not that simple. So, yeah, what happened after that? <laughs> if only, right? Because it's like right? your non-cancer you're friends like, are like, "Great, now I'm pregnant." Got to prove, yeah. yeah, like go get pregnant. Um, so I was lucky in the sense that my hospital was connected to the fertility clinic mm-hmm. where I had done the fertility preservation. I know that's not always the case. Um, you know, sometimes you're at a fertility clinic that's totally separate from your care team, and so. I was able to just go back to the exact same kind of endocrine fertility specialist that I had seen prior to my cancer. Um, And we kind of had those very unique discussions, like of my case and my situation. 
we did some testing on my ovarian function after I had gone off my meds to see kind of, hey, how are things going down there? Are the cells like, <laughs> is there life <laughs> after things have been put to sleep for so long? Um, and based on some of those results, I had a really positive um, kind of response to being under the, the Lupron and the Letrozole in the sense that my fertility specialist felt like there was, it was worth us trying naturally first before going to, um, to the frozen embryos that we had. And so we kind of came up with a plan of, you're going to wait three months to kind of go off your meds and see if your cycle comes back. Um, and I remember she was, she said, wait three months. And of course I'm panicked because, you know, the, the closer it gets to the three months, you start wondering like, yeah. is my body going to come back to life? What impact has chemo had on my body, like you're already feeling like cancer has taken so much from you physically and emotionally. And now you're in this position of just like waiting to see, does my body come back to life from this, um, you know, hormonal yeah. cycle. Um, and so my period came back like three months to the day, which was just crazy. I remember crying at work, like happy tears. The first time <laughs> I've ever had happy tears about a, you know, period yeah. before. Um, and so then we got into this kind of cycle. She was like, well, let's try naturally for, you know, three to six months and kind of timed intercourse and checking your ovulation. And it was in that time frame that I think for the first time in my adult life, I realized how difficult it is to get pregnant and that we don't talk about that enough as mm -hmm. like women, as adults, we kind of just think like, you're going to get pregnant and you decide it and it happens. And that's not the case for women, even if they didn't have cancer. And there's um, such a stigma around having those conversations. Exactly. And people aren't saying like, yeah, it took me 18 months or yeah, it took me a year and, and not really talking about like, what do those months look like, right? Where you're trying to figure out when is my body ovulating and when is the best time to have sexual intercourse and how do you manage the physical side of trying to conceive with the emotional relationship side mm -hmm. of here, I'm rebuilding a partnership, not to mention the added complexity of being in medical menopause, and then now coming off and feeling like my body felt very different to me of there not being maybe this pain mm -hmm. associated with sexual intercourse and like trying to figure out like, what's desire, what's intimacy, like in a different way. Um, and so we were actually lucky in the sense that we got pregnant. Um, we got pregnant like three months to the day from trying after that initial three months. But I, you know, we got to have like 48 hours of this wonderful, just like joy and excitement over being pregnant and the very naive, like, great, nothing's going to happen. Like, there's nothing to be worried about. And then it, it probably was about 48 hours later, I started having really intense, um, like abdominal pelvic pain. And um, we were actually on the way out of town and had just had kind of my HCG test. And we were on the way to my mother in law's um, wedding out of town. And my doctor, my fertility doctor called me and told me that my HCG levels were dropping and she was really concerned about my pain and that I should go right to the hospital if um, the pain escalated. And so we, 
we got to the city that we were going to, which was out of town and actually ended up like calling an ambulance and things escalated and got really, really horrible just with the excruciating pain and me not being able to walk. And so we ended up at that I had an ectopic, um, ruptured ectopic pregnancy in one of my fallopian tubes. Um, so talk about nightmare. We're out of town in a small, small rural beach hospital, like not with my care team, not with my fertility yeah. specialist, not with like the, the people that I want to be at. Um, and ended up having to have emergency surgery because it had ruptured and it was in my fallopian tube and it was of a danger to me. And so I ended up having um, one of my fallopian tubes removed and the pregnancy removed from my body. And so that was very, I mean, of course, emotionally crushing because you've just gone through like three years of waiting for this moment and then 48 hours of excitement. And then now you're in the hospital and now they're telling me, you know, you're going to have to wait X, Y, Z amount of time to heal. And in my mind, all I could be thinking about is like, no, I need to like start right away because I'm thinking of the cancer timeline. I'm like, no, I have to like get pregnant right away. And so it was like this conflicting, how do I heal and process and accept this grief of the moment that I'm in while also still having hope that, you know, we can try again. And so that was a very difficult um, month. I mean, it definitely was comforting to go back home after we were released from the hospital and kind of reset with my fertility specialist. And now I only had one fallopian tube. So it was like this added pressure each month of, am I going to release an egg on the side that I actually have a fallopian tube in hopes of getting pregnant? And so then you end up learning all this crazy stuff about fertility of like sometimes the egg can hop to the other fallopian too but there's no data on it and so it would feel like each month I would go in and I would get a scan and is the is the egg on the right side and then you know sometimes by day 14 of your cycle it would be like well you probably don't have much of a chance and so we tried three more months um of trying naturally and um we didn't we didn't have any success. And so that was really discouraging. And at that point, again, cancer clock ticking, I'm thinking, okay, we're eight, nine, 10 months into the first year of trying my oncologist had kind of given me a two year window to be off my medication. Um, and so I don't know if that's common, you know, in kind of your cases with yeah. your patients too. And so at that point that we kind of reevaluated and said, all right, it's been this amount of time we've tried, like in the interest of time and my cancer care and needing to go back on my medications, let's try the frozen embryo. And so we went the frozen embryo route. And again, now you're learning all new kinds of things. So let's make sure your, um, your uterine lining is thick and let's check for all these things and prep your body in different ways. And so we had um, a successful frozen embryo transfer in November of that year. So that was my second pregnancy. Um, and we're very, very excited. Like we didn't share anything with the community or anything publicly, but we did share with family around the holidays just because we were so excited. Um, and then at seven and a half weeks, we found out that there was no heartbeat. And so talk about, you know, just soul crushing, like, 
<laughs> I mean, any women, I know that, you know, miscarriage and is so common, but it is so not talked about. Um, again, with the stigma and the just, you know, pain of like feeling that and feeling really isolated, like maybe you did something wrong, or did I, you know, eat something or did I move, you know, you just you spiral similar to the cancer situation. Um, and so I ended up having a DNC and having that pregnancy removed again. And so I think the second time was definitely harder for me. The first time I had only had 48 hours to be pregnant and really like adjust. But the second time, seven and a half weeks is a long time. Plus when you're going through like a, a fertility procedure to get pregnant, it's so much more like orchestrated if that is the right word to describe it in the sense that like, you know, the day you're implanted, you know, what days you're checking, what there's not a lot of mystery to it. Um, and so I think you get attached a little bit sooner. Um, and so that was, that was really hard. I definitely went through kind of some, like disconnection from my body after that pregnancy loss and really had to figure out like, how do I trust my body again? Because it was, it, we had been trying for a year at that point and having gone through multiple losses, it was just kind of like, is this even worth it? Like, do we want to keep trying? Like, maybe it's not going to happen. Um, and so really just kind of giving myself my body some time to heal and adjust to that. And I definitely was in a very negative headspace of just feeling like it's not going to happen. Started exploring other options that are out there for anyone that's going through fertility struggles, you know, adoption, surrogacy. What are the other choices that are out there? Um, and was just feeling really frustrated with my body. And so crazy enough, I had to go back in for um, a procedure to have um, scar tissue removed from my DNC, because we were going to do one more cycle of the frozen embryo transfer. And when they did the scans, there was some tissue and they're like, it could interfere. So we go through that. I'm healing from that surgery had horrible complications on my vagina. They're like, this is the worst reaction we've literally ever seen. They had to send it to like every doctor in the whole hospital. Like I'm in so much pain. I can't pee. Like it's itching. It's red. It's like, horrible. So clearly like, I'm not thinking about sex at this time. I'm like so depressed. And then sometime in the next six weeks between then and when we were trying to do the next cycle, we kept checking my estrogen levels to try and prepare for the next cycle. And every time we went in, they're like, your estrogen hasn't gone back down. Like we can't do the next cycle yet. And each time I'm getting like angrier and angrier with my body of, come on, I just like, my clock is ticking. We need to do this now. And finally, my husband looks at me and he, one night and he's like, I think you're pregnant. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I can't be pregnant. Like we haven't, we haven't been trying like you know it's been, it's been yeah. almost a year and a half now of like all this orchestration to get pregnant like no no way and he's like will you just like take a pregnancy test before we go in for the labs on Sunday and I was like okay sure so I like pee on the stick and go downstairs because I'm literally like not even thinking about the results I'm like I can't be pregnant and I come back up and he's holding the stick in my face in the bathroom and I was like what's that 
And he's like, you're pregnant. I was like, what? Why did he, like, is there something that prompted him to think that? You know, and I still don't know. Like, I probably need to ask him to this day. But I think he, we had, we had also been in counseling with a really, really wonderful kind of um, fertility loss and grief counselor who our fertility specialist had recommended. And she had really been helping us try to like see both sides because he really wanted to continue to try naturally and not rule out the fact that maybe my body would just know what to do. And so it could have had something to do with like him still having some sense of like faith or hope for that. And he knew that I was like already let's put a deposit down on adoption. Like, you know, I was just a hundred steps ahead and he's here. And so maybe to him, he was just like, you know, maybe you're so frustrated with your body, but you're, but it's something else going on. Um, And so it was just so, yeah, surreal. And so that is my, that is my son who is now three and a half. So that was a really, really long story. I love it. I mean, that's how we got there. You, I mean, you went through so much um, to get there. Oh my gosh, quite the, quite the roller coaster of yeah. just every emotion and experience under the sun. But I think, you know, for anyone that's going through the experience, my advice is always just there is always another option. There is always like another route or another way to try around the corner. And I think for us cancer survivors, particularly, you do feel that timeline, the pressure of being off your medication, but finding some way to be like, okay, let's try to stay in the moment. (laughs) Let's try to stay in the right now and not go down the path of like the what ifs in, in 18 months. But yeah, it was a, it was a ride for sure. <laughs> He's three and a half and he is thriving and amazing. When did he he, when did you go back? Did you go back on your medications after he was born? Yeah. So I know you had kind of mentioned in our pre-chat, you know, like that fear and of going off your medications for so many of your patients. And I get asked the question a lot, like, how did you how did you find like peace or some sense of acceptance with being off of your medication? Um, And in full transparency, now that you've kind of heard the story of my trying to conceive, I was so consumed with the stress of trying to get pregnant and these losses that I didn't have any space in my mind to be worried about cancer because I was so worried about these other pieces. But as soon as it got to the point in my pregnancy where I felt like, okay, this is really going to go through, which was pretty far along. I mean, maybe seven months or so. Then I was like, okay, I want to go back on my medication right away. And so I saw my oncologist about four weeks after I had my son and I started medication six weeks Mm -hmm. total after. Um, And so at the time I was feeling very hormonal and said to her, I was like, I want to have another baby. How, How long do I have to go? And she was like, Hey, Anna, let's take a chill pill. Like maybe could you give me two years? <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. I'll give you <laughs> two years. Yeah. And so, but that was hard too of, you know, having gone through now two years of being off my medication and feeling like a different person in my body and not having 
that medical menopause side effects and feeling, you know, just wonderful. And so I definitely went through some anger kind of going back on and readjusting. Well, and I think it's so hard because, you know, this is supposed to be such a time in your life, right? Where you're in new motherhood and new baby. And the last thing you want, the last thing you want to be doing is like, now you have to go back on these medications that, you know, even in the best case scenarios have side effects. Exactly. And I, you know, you're, you're hormonal and then you're dealing with like, okay, I'm hormonal from the pregnancy, but now I'm going to suddenly suppress all those hormones for the oncology medications. And I just remember this honestly had nothing to do with the medication, but I think everything to do with just where I was at emotionally. And I went to that four or six week appointment with my oncologist. And I was so excited to bring my son and, you know, go inside and show her like, Hey, we made it. And then it was right before COVID and everything happened and they didn't allow any babies in there. And so it was like, I had showed up to the appointment with my son. And then it was like this realization that I had to call my husband to come get the baby so that I could go in and talk about cancer without him. And it was almost just like that dichotomy of like, wait, I'm in this moment of joy. And now I have to go into the cancer hospital and talk about all of that. But as much as that was hard, I did have a good sense of, I think, relief or um, just feeling good being back on the medication, not physically, but just the comfort of saying like, okay, I'm back in risk reduction mode <laughs> through that period. And so that was, that part was comforting. Fast forward, infant, new baby. When did you start thinking about baby number two? Yes. So after my crazy hormones, right after he was born past, I was like, no way am I having another, like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Like we're done. I'm a one and done. Like all my friends were like all my friends from the mom's group that I had met were all getting like pregnant again, like really quickly. And I was like, no, I'm the only one. And I also, you know, it was very interesting for me because I had mentioned to you how after cancer, I kind of went through this rediscovery and like, who am I beyond being a mother? Well, now I was a mother, but I still had that foundation of like, here's who I am outside of being a mother. And I loved all that. You know, I had this sense of like, I am this speaker and I am this advocate and I do this stuff with the community. And so I really like fell back into that fulfillment and felt like, Hey, I'm really fulfilled in so many aspects Mm -hmm. of my life. I don't think that I really want another kid. And my husband really wanted more kids and, but was so respectful and just like, okay, like if you don't, you know, then we're happy with where we're at and really felt like that was, you know, going to be my life. Um, It really wasn't until, so two years passed and I got to the point with my oncologist where now officially I had been on all of my hormone blocking medication for five years and I really wanted to stop. Um, I just, you know, was tired of the side effects and kind of went in to have that conversation of like, can I take a break? Can I stop? And they're like, "Mm, I don't know. You know, we don't really, Mm -hmm. you were in triple positive. You were like very strongly hormonal positive. Um, 
they were like, you know, we need to redo your bone density scan. Let's take a look and see like what impacts the yeah. medication is having on you so you can weigh. And of course they're like, you know, at the end of the day, it's your decision, but I don't know that we really want you to go. Medication. You know, I feel like I have this conversation like multiple times a day. Every day, right? Um, and yeah, I'm sure there's no right there's answer. No right, there's no right answer. I mean, and I think that, you know, we don't have a crystal ball into the future. And so while we'd love to say to someone, yes, like totally you've been on it for five years, like cool you can go off it. We don't know. And, and we don't want to do harm and we also don't want people to suffer. And so it's, it's so hard. Yeah. I mean, you're so right. And I, I think I always appreciate when oncologists like yourself kind of are just op open about that, right? Like there's not the data, there's not yeah. this one way or the other, but you're right. Like we don't want to do harm. We also want to give you like as much risk reduction reduction as possible. And it, it was, I actually left that meeting with my N NP um, because my oncologist wasn't there that day. Cause she was like, Hey, you're five years. Like you don't need to see me. I was like, no, I love you. Please. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like you can see my nurse practitioner. We're good. And so I went home and it was that day I actually got online and I saw a fellow um, triple positive survivor talking about the fact that she had had the um, breast cancer index study done. And I had never heard of it before. And so I started doing some research and she had shared with me about her experience of going through it. Um, and so I kind of reached back out to my oncologist was like, Hey, what do you know about this test? You know, would you recommend it? Do you think it's worth it? And we kind of talked through it. And um, she was like, you know, it's not necessarily Again, it's not going to be this crystal ball that's going to tell you for sure you should continue, for sure you shouldn't X, Y, Z. Um, but I decided to proceed with the test. I was like, essentially, since they had put the ball in my court of saying, let's get these data points so that you can make an informed decision about what you want to do, to me, doing the breast cancer index test felt like, well, here's one more data point that I could have um, in terms of making a decision. And I would say probably six weeks later, I got the results. And again, up until this point, I'm like, I'm not having any more kids. Like I told them, I was like, I'm officially done. Like we're good. And then I got this paperwork back from the breast cancer index that was essentially said, like, based on our data of your pathology, there is a percent benefit to you continuing hormone blocking therapy for another five years. And in that moment, it was just like everything shifted for me. And um, <laughs> this is probably like TMI, but my husband that night when I told him, I was like, I want to have another baby. And he was like, whoa, like you have been telling me for two years, like, no more kids. Are you sure? Like, you're not just horny or something. Like, I think we need to like pause. Like, he was like, can you please think about this for a week? Like, this is a big decision. Because yeah. <laughs> he was just so shocked. He's like, wait, where yeah. is this coming from? But I'm sure like, you probably can relate to this on the provider side of hearing your patients kind of when you get certain news or you're you have this decision on your plate, 
it makes you rethink, I think, the decisions or the factors in your life. So I don't know if you've had that. Like, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think it comes up with patients, but it comes up, I think, in all of our lives, right? Where you're in between decisions and you think you've made a decision and then something happens that gets taken away from you. And then you're like, but wait, no, that's not actually how I felt about it. Right. And, you know, and, yes. and I, so I, where I see this in my practice a lot is in patients who come in with a new diagnosis already have children and they've been on the fence about a second or a third, but they think they don't want it or they've been, you know, they think they don't want it anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, chemo is going to put you into menopause, you know? And very likely you may not be able to conceive. And then it's like, wait a second, I wanted to make this decision on my own. Like, I don't want, you know, now cancer is taking me, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, no, I do think I want another child. So we see that, you know, I think we just, as human beings, we want to make decisions for our bodies. We don't want external forces to do it, right? And I think that goes beyond cancer, obviously, but I think in this case, it makes sense, right? You're now told, well, no, you probably should stay on the medication. And now it's like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, you're so right. When the the option is taken off the table, not by your choice, it changes how you think about the choice itself. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So that literally was the moment when I was like, oh, I guess I want to have a second kid. And so now you're pre- you're very pregnant as we're speaking. Uh, yes, very pregnant, seven weeks from <laughs> from my injection. So very, very close now. <laughs> um, and was the pregnancy, you know, was the second pregnancy and conception kind of how was that different? How did that, you know, come about? You know, I think part of for me the reason that I think for so long, I didn't think I wanted to have another kid was partially tied to my experience trying to get pregnant the first time. And just, you know, you spoke to, um, you know, how difficult having those difficult, fearful conversations with your partner. I mean, I think that was part of having that conversation with my husband was like, I don't know if my heart can go through this again. Like we had so much loss and trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can put myself through that again. And so I think that moment where I was like, I want to have a second child. Part of that was deciding like, Hey, I have to be willing to like open myself up to this loss and this potential of again, knowing there's no guarantees just because I said, I want to have a kid. Um, (laughs) But we were very lucky. My cycle came back again. We kind of went through the same process. My cycle came back in four months instead of three months, but it still came back. Um, And somehow, oddly enough, I don't even understand the science of this, my ovarian reserve numbers actually went up um, in as compared to even before I did my fertility preservation. Um, And so in speaking to my doctor, she was like, you know, this could have your body's under a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it, it could have varying factors. But with all that in mind, they kind of again, were like, well, maybe you should try naturally. Um, But unfortunately, my fertility team, the office was going through a lot of changes. And so I had to change providers. And we had a pretty horrible experience just with our fertility providers and the offices and nurses and medical teams. So it was, it was very unpleasant, in a very different way this time around. Um, But we actually 
I think this time being, knowing what I had gone through and having so much difficulty, the plan this time was that maybe we would do some ovarian stimulation. I don't know if that's the right term, like yeah. a Clomid, Letrozole yeah. um, kind of approach to see if my body could produce more eggs. And so we did that for one month with the clinic that we were having a really horrible experience with. And we were going to do an IUI and they dismissed it and said my follicles weren't big enough. And the second month they increased my dose and um, again, told me the follicles weren't big enough. And by that point we had been with them about six weeks and were really, really upset with our care and just being dismissed and, and not really cared for and listened to. And so we kind of took things into our own hands again. I mean, now it's been like five, six years of having gone through fertility treatment and seeing the power of going to the community with questions and support. And so we already had um, the trigger shots at home for the IUI because everything had been scheduled and then they canceled it on me. And so they didn't even want to see me again for an ultrasound, which was just so insane because I'm like, well, I haven't ovulated yet. Mm -hmm. Like, just let me come yeah. back in. I, I know I haven't ovulated yet. I've been checking every day. They're like, no, no, no. Ultrasound can't help you figure that out. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it can. Like if the eggs are still there, then I haven't ovulated. So I went in, a nurse didn't see me, a doctor didn't see me. I just went in with my little notebook and I was like, great, got my information. Like, I know what, thank you for telling me the size of my follicles. I'm going to go home now. And um, we never spoke to them again. We did our trigger shot at home that Friday. And four weeks later, I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. And it was just like, in kind of insane because last time we had spent these two years of like so much trauma that it was kind of shocking. Like, wait, <laughs> is, is that pregnant? Like, is this for real? Um, but also just such a blessing. I mean, I'm sure you see it with your patients all the time of just like, gosh, you've been through so much. If there's these wins yeah. that we can have, like, I am just going to accept it. So I told everyone in my life that I was pregnant very early on this time. And I just decided that if something were to happen that I would want all of those people to have shared in those weeks of joy with us. And that, you know, having gone through so much loss, it was not worth waiting or being fearful. And so, yes, now here we are seven weeks away from a child. It still feels a little surreal. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and now that's two kind of spontaneous pregnancies after cancer, which just absolutely blows my mind. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I have just chills listening to that, to that story. Um, but I think there's so much that we don't understand and that we don't know. Right. And I think, like you said, yes, take the wins when you can get them. And sometimes they don't make sense. And sometimes scientifically you're like this, well, how does this happen? And, um, and I think there's just so much still that we don't know in the medical professional profession. And I really think this speaks to like knowing your body the best, right. And knowing, and like, knowing what's normal and what's not normal and what feels right and what feels off and and really you know I mean kudos to you to for advocating for yourself right and saying this is not serving me I'm leaving I'm getting a new doctor and like that's really hard to do like, oh so hard it's not it's not that easy to just be like all right well you guys have all my care all my records all my information and now I have to and like I think the emotional 
impact of starting over with a new doctor. You know, it was hard. I see people who come for second opinion or transfers of care a lot and you're starting from the beginning, you know, and now you have to almost relive that whole experience and that whole trauma and grief of cancer all over again, when you have to retell your story. And sometimes that can be really hard. Oh, that's so true. And I think, like you said, you, you know, there's so much unknown both on your side and the medical provider, and you're both humans trying to come together and start a new relationship on some sense of common ground with so many unknowns, right? And and that can be really hard. Um, but I think like you said, just knowing when it's time to advocate for yourself and when it's time to say like, enough is enough, like the, what whatever the negative or the experiences that you're having, if you feel like it's actually impacting your care, yeah. then that to me was like the time to say, this is not working for us. Like we're not getting the care that we need or that I need. Um, and I, I hope that other people kind of, you know, hear and, and feel that too, because I think I hear from women that are like, well, how do you choose? How do you even find another fertility person? You know, if you've been referred to one person or oncologist or someone, how would, how do you find them? Um, and so one thing for me, I literally was like, I would go to fertility clinics and then I would look at um, the provider's residency experience. And if they had any kind of like oncology background or Mm -hmm. any kind of um, writings that they'd done on anything like related to cancer, because to me, it was just a little bit more comforting to be with someone that had some realm of understanding around cancer versus it just being maybe like a general um, endocrine or hormonal practitioner. I think it's, it's so hard finding a doctor, you know, we all struggle with it because, you know, when you, I kind of, you know, when you're newly diagnosed, you know, you're somebody refers you to an oncologist, right. And you don't have time to find and look around because you're literally in like the fight for your life in that moment, right. You have to like have surgery and chemotherapy and all this stuff. And I think later, sometimes when the dust settles or you're in survivorship, like it's okay to say, you know what, like, maybe what I, maybe it's not working right now, or maybe things have changed. And so just recognizing that the doctor patient relationship can change. Um, and it's okay. Yes. You know, when we, I mean, I kind of joke about this a little bit, but like, if you want to get work done on your house, right, you interview like five different contractors before you like find one that you like. <laughs> and you, for like something that is your life, you don't, you just are like, well, this is who they set me up with. And like, cool. Um, and so it's okay if that person, if you, you realize like, okay, that relationship worked when it needed to, maybe right now it's not working anymore. <laughs> I love that. And I think, you know, I mean, you do such a great job and, and other providers on Instagram of like sharing the provider side too, and like feeling empowered, because I think there is this, like you said, you get referred to someone and there's this medical kind of, well, I must listen to the, to the doctor and this is what they're saying and this is what's best for me. And I think one of the things I've learned so much over the years is like providers are people too, <laughs> like, you know, we're all people. Yeah. And like you said, just like a contractor is like, you have to find the right fit, a therapist, you have to find the right fit. And I love what you said about it's okay that in your emergency moment of needing care, you went with this doctor. But if as your needs evolve, and your family planning or whatever it might be, if, if it's your primary care, 
Like it's okay to say, Hey, I need something different now and look for that in a new way. And, and don't feel bad about it. You know what yes. I mean? Like, I think that's also part of it. And I have switched doctors and I always, and I, I, I was feeling bad about it. And someone in my office, said, like, why do you feel like, like, this is what you talk about all the time. And I was like, I know but I still feel bad. And like, and I think we have to just get away from that and just recognize that we're not doing, you know, when people switch physicians, our healthcare teams, it's not malicious. It's just finding something that serves you a little bit better. And that's, that's okay. That's a good thing. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's a relationship right? And not every relationship is meant to be forever. And it doesn't mean something about the person or the doctor or the patient. There's nothing wrong on any side. (laughs) Change and people evolve. Um, So tell me before we wrap up, like, what are you most excited about with this, with the new baby? And what are you really like, emotions? Like, what's it like? Oh, gosh, all the things. Well, I know I was asking you beforehand, too, like having multiples. It's a it's been a totally different experience Mm -hmm. with pregnancy, like just much more uncomfortable. And so I think I'm just it's hard for me to imagine meeting this other person that I can love and connect with as much as my son. But I hear from all the parents that have multiples that it just happens. And so I'm just so excited to meet him and like to form that relationship again. And I'm taking four months off um, from my day job and I'm taking three months off from like my blog and social media and just my husband's going to be home. And so I'm just really excited for like literally the first time since before cancer. I mean, since after college to have a summer to just like bond as a family and have experiences and like not think about, cancer treatment or trying to get pregnant or loss or like anything else. And that's not to say that like life isn't still going to have its ups and downs and newborn life is really hard, but I'm just so excited for like really being present and trying to like enjoy this time that I know I would like never get back. And so, yeah, that's what I'm most excited for. Love it. And I think, you know, being this being a second time mom, right? Like there's, you kind of know, like, you, you know the things. And so I think I, for me, I felt like I was actually able to be more present the second time around because I wasn't like so anxious about all the newborn, like, are they eating? Are they sleeping? Cause you know, all of that stuff, like it'll happen. They'll eat and they'll exactly. sleep. Exactly. Like the confidence is there yeah, exactly. in a different way. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, you know, that goes back to so much of just like what we've been talking about this whole time of like, how do you build your confidence and advocacy for yourself? And I think the same is true, like as a parent that like, you're not second guessing yourself as much. You're like a little bit more present and just accepting of who you are as a parent. So yes, thank you so much. I am so excited for you. Um, Where I know pretty much everyone follows you already, but if they don't, how can people connect with you online? Yes. So I, um, my cancer chic, C-H-I-C on all the social medias. I'm most active on Instagram, a little bit on TikTok. Um, and then I have my blog, mycancerchic.com, where I write regularly about cancer content, mental health, motherhood, all of the things. So I would love, love to connect with your audience and just love what you're doing on social media. And thank you. Thank you so much again for having me. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this conversation with Anna. It is such an important one. And I hope that you found it helpful and really took from this a sense 
of how challenging life act life after active cancer treatment is and how difficult these decisions can be for so many. You can find Anna on social media at My Cancer Chic on all channels. And I would urge you to check out her website and read her blog and her offer writing at mycancerchic.com. You can find me at Dr. Japlinski on all social media channels. And if you have a moment to leave a rating and review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that means so much to me because every rating, every review brings the show to a new listener and it can be really helpful. Thank you again. And I will see all of you soon. Thank you.